Hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest episode of Nuclear Barbarians with me, your nuclear barbarian, Emmett Penny. I am here with uh, one of the people who I have learned a ton about the nuclear energy history in the United States from, Nick Turan, aka What is Nuclear? How's it going, Nick? Great. Happy to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, happy to have you here. So I can't remember. I think I found out about you in one of your perhaps infamous sparring sessions with Paul Dorfman or somebody like that. And I was like, man, this guy's got some sharp stuff. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I try to avoid that kind of thing. But there's sometimes that you just have to, it's kind of like, all right, you know, get the get the glass of water and snacks out. We're doing this. <laughs> and I went clicking around your profile page and then found your website, whatisnuclear.com. Mm. And for somebody who doesn't have an engineering background and who has come to this by a totally different route, it is often difficult to find any solid info on the history of nuclear. Authors like Richard Rhodes aside. And you know, not everybody has the time to be like, okay, I'm going to read both The Dark Sun and <laughs> The Making, yeah, the making of, of. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and that's the rest of my year, you know, so it's been great to learn from you by proxy in this great passion project. But before we talk about that, I just wanted to get to know you a little bit on your website. It says that you decided around 2002, that you wanted to help solve the world's energy problems and you saw nuclear energy as one of the major ways to do that. My main question is how did you get to a point where you were like, the world has energy problems and I think nuclear should be the one that one of the things that should solve it. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, it's so like energy problems, even back in, it's funny because it's 20 years ago now, but in 2002, energy problems were sort of a major point that people were talking about. And it was something mm -hmm. that my friends and I just casually were chatting about in high school, you know, kind of talking about what we wanted to do, which we didn't talk about that too often, but it was clear that sort of energy problems were, were of interest. I mean, climate change was kind of the major thing. And, and also kind of energy independence was a big topic back then in terms yes. of like imported oil. You know, this is right after 9-11. And so anyway, so I just was interested in, in energy in general from society at large, just at public high school. And so then I didn't really know what to do with that interest, but I, I knew I liked engineering. So I mm -hmm. found an engineer, I applied to some engineering schools and I went to the local engineering school in my state, which just happened to be University of Michigan. <laughs> so you're a Michigander. Uh, yes. I grew up in Northern Lower Peninsula. So here. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. My mom's from Detroit. So oh, cool. got yeah, a lot yeah. of family out in Michigan. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, so I went. I just went there and did the basic engineering curriculum, you know, which is basically two years of standard classes that every engineer takes, and you're, you're supposed to declare a major eventually within those mm -hmm. two years. And I, I went to a peer advisor sometime in that in that period, and just I said like, I don't know what to major in. I like energy, but I don't know what to do with it. And she was like, Well. I mean, electrical engineering is clear, and you should also check out our nuclear engineering department. It just so <laughs> happens that Michigan's one of the 
several universities, it still has a separate nuclear engineering department, which, of course, mm-hmm. I'd heard of, but I never seriously considered. And I thought, oh, I don't know. Isn't nuclear bad and dangerous and, you know, uncool? <laughs> All the things. Yeah. yeah. And she's like, well, I'll tell you what. They have an intro class, NERS 250. And if you take it, that'll satisfy this elective requirement. And then you can decide, you know, whether you like that or if you want to do electrical engineering. So I took the, like, hard electrical engineering circuits class and and i took the nuclear intro class and it was in that nuclear intro class where i really professor kim kierfoot just laid it all out and just sort of dispelled all the myths that i sort of thought i knew and it's and i just got really interested in it and thought wow nuclear super interesting super capable not very well liked and so what a great opportunity (laughs) maybe i can like push the needle in here you know it's like not that many people are working on it like maybe there's so it was it was very interesting for all those reasons and i originally started out doing work in as i took classes and stuff i got into i was in a fusion lab and i was going to work on Mm. fusion and i thought about that for several years and then in this by the time i was a senior i got in i learned about advanced fission, mm-hmm. fast neutrons, breeder reactors, all those kind of things. And so that kind of hooked me and I've been working on those ever since. That's amazing. Yeah. It's hard to remember back to like what the debates were, especially about energy independence. I mean, I think those flared up and then uh, as certain decisions were made and as the shale gas revolution took place, yeah. it was like that debate window really <laughs> closed really, really quickly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Things have changed. It's funny to sort of, I, I can sometimes see things I was talking about back then. And yeah, and the, the shale thing, it really s- turned that over. It, it's not, we are the energy independent in that regard now. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Well, that's fascinating because, I mean, I think nuclear feels so secret, right? Like, I love that you showed up at the, and you were just like, well, isn't it dangerous to sell all these bad things? I had yeah. a similar conversation. That was my first conversation with Michael Schellenberger. Nice. He was just like, what do you know about nuclear? And I was like, but then it's bad. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I was like, that's what I know. Yeah. Um, and I'm wondering over the course of your time, since you've been in this way longer and way stronger than I have, what have you noticed in changes in how people talk about nuclear, if any? Well, you know, it's kind of been, I kind of feel like we're not too far from where I started. I mean, at the, <laughs> but it's gone through a big, a couple swings, uh, even, mm-hmm. I guess I'm getting into middle age at this point, but you know, in 2002, Michigan had just shut down its research reactor because, you know, nuclear was bad. And so they're mm-hmm. shutting, you know, but then just around then there was talk of the the nuclear Renaissance, which we all talked about. And it was sort of, you know, wind and solar were 10 times more expensive than they are today. And there, and climate change was a major issue. There was like literally no, there wasn't even any debate. It was like, there's definitely going to be a bunch of nuclear reactors to solve climate change. Mm-hmm. And so there was this huge amount of enthusiasm and talk about the nuclear renaissance. And it got, it actually got sort of ridiculous to the point that I made like a, I made a bingo card generator that was like nuclear <laughs> renaissance bingo. And we would, I took it to a, an ANS conference at one point. We like handed it out and pretended we were official. And we're like, if you get a bingo during the <laughs> keynote speech, you know, stand up and yell bingo, but don't clear your card. Anyway, so it was very exciting and, and all that. And then, I mean, and then Fukushima happened, which really like swung it sort of the other way. And yeah, that's a saw, mood killer. Yeah. And, that, and so that, you know, we saw Germany re, 
yeah. you know, revitalizing their their Atom Exit and mm-hmm. we saw Japan, which was one of our, you know, look at Japan, they built all these reactors. They're they're building AVWRs, you know, like crazy, super fast, very high tech, mm-hmm. fancy reactors. So anyway, that was like a that was a big swing down. And now it feels like we're sort of seeing a swing sort of back up. So mm. I don't know, it's sort of been a bit of a sine wave. Yeah, <laughs> the sine wave of his trajectory of nuclear advocacy in the 21st yeah. century. Yeah, no, I like that. I mean, it's crazy how much Fukushima just absolutely swallowed that. I mean, 10 years later, that is one of the biggest replies I get, which is crazy. It's not even Chernobyl now. Right. People yeah. aren't like, have you seen the elephant's foot? Like, whatever, you know, they're like, <laughs> yeah. Thousands of people died in Fukushima. I was like, yeah, in the hurricane, in the, in the, yeah, in the, the tsunami, tsunami yeah. and the earthquake, man. Yeah. And then the other major thing, I mean, is that, um, that wind and solar did have these like cost revolutions. And so, yeah. you know, you get to the point where there's like at least some people in academia talking about 100% wind and solar as like a thing. And that's, you know, extraordinarily popular and very kind of captures the imagination. And so that's another, you know, which is at least a positive, at least it's low carbon energy. So it's not like, you know, in 2002, it was like climate change isn't real, you know, was your major debate we were having. Yeah. And now it's like, well, can you do it all with intermittent sources or do you need some, you know, firm low carbon stuff? And so that's another shift that's happened. Yeah, definitely. What, so what brought you, I read also, I was going through the nuclear history thing today because I was, I was looking yeah. through the fast breeder section <laughs> oh, yeah. and I was like, what happened here? And then I got to the point where part where it was like, this was, this website was made on vacation out of a labor of love. So let's talk about the what is nuclear site because I do a lot of strange things out of a labor of love. Like, you know, I really like going through Euclid's elements and things like that, but I don't think I would be able to churn out a website of the historical quality that you've done. So how long was this vacation, my guy? It was it was like a pretty long vacation. So I mean, what what really happened here is like my wife is a like a physician in training. And so Mm -hmm. she works through holidays like pretty much every year. And so she'll work for, I may get two weeks off from work and then she she works through, you know, around Christmas and the week before. And often she gets like a week vacation right after Christmas and like that's her vacation. So I have to take that time up. So there's like a three week block of time um, that I've had sort of two years in a row and, or there were two years in a row that I experienced that. And so it was in one of those sort of three week things that I really dug. I kind of, and one of these vacations was with in-laws. So, you know, there was, (laughs) they were like, which is fine, you know, they're great, but we weren't out doing big adventures. It was like chilling in the tropics and, you know, just kicking back at the pool. And I kind of just got on the, I started, I found this trove of historical documents and started going through it and wanted to kind Mm of, you know, put them in a place where I could find them and remember them with like a little summary of them. And I was like, well, shoot, I might as well just write it up as a history page. And so that kind of the, the, the foundations of that history page were all done sort of in those three weeks. And then I spent another few weeks after vacation kind of polishing it up and turning it into more mm-hmm. of a story. So it wasn't a hundred percent on vacation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, but largely what I, what I loved is that you have a quote from David Lillian on the landing page, who's been totally forgotten, right? which is wild. So 
I went it, because of your website. I went looking into David Lilienthal because I was reading histories of the New Deal okay. in 2020. Because people, I was like, people talk about a Green New Deal all the time. What do I even know about the original New Deal? Hmm. You know, like yeah. I like if we're gonna keep saying that, what do what do I mean by anything hmm. like that? Yeah, yeah. And he kept popping up, and I was like, who is this guy? I've never heard of him. Hmm. And the more I looked into it, I was just like, okay, so this guy was like the tip of the spear for the TVA. He was the first Atomic Energy Commission yeah. chair, like chairman, and he did all of this other work. And I was like, everything he's ever written is out, out of print. And the one biography of him published in the late 90s, also out of print. I was like, this yeah. guy does not exist <laughs> anymore. Yeah, there's a lot of forgotten things and people. Yeah, I mean, you probably know more about him than I do at this point. I've yet to read the biography, but one day I will. But what do you make of that? The fact that this history has been so occluded so forgotten well, not just of him but yeah like early nuclear history well i mean that's that's another thing that i thought so that sort of maybe like irks me a bit and maybe drove me to a degree to sort mm -hmm. of try to revital to bring back some of that history in an accessible way is that you know a lot of times you'll see people talking about how they're they came up with you know the a new reactor concept that's gonna you know, change everything because it's like an idea that nobody had before. And one of my hobbies is like finding when people say they have a reactor idea that nobody ever thought of before and going and finding, <laughs> you know, the thing in 1950 where somebody had that idea and did yeah. I mean, So there was this time in the 50s, the smartest people in the world, hundreds of thousands of the smartest people in the world were all totally focused on nuclear power. Like nuclear was the new field of physics. It was it had had these incredible advances in, you know, in propulsion for submarines, which gave, gave it was basically like a superpower energy source. And so everybody was into it. Everybody was working on it. And there was just untold amounts of money spent on it. And so and like a lot of that stuff is basically forgotten. And there's tons of like really good stuff in there. So as I kind of started looking into it and sort of looking under the covers or whatever i was like wow this is like still relevant and this is interesting and geez i never thought about having you know that particular configuration and and you can see i mean they were capturing discussions in conferences q a that they were transcribed and they're still in there and it's actually i mean it's very interesting and it's like helpful as a reactor design person to be like well you know these all these smartest people in the world put all this stuff out there and it's all, you know, scanned in public domain now. And so, you know, that's pretty interesting. So there's a lot of tidbits in there that I think are really interesting and, you know, potentially useful. So, yeah. And I think, I, I mean, I think a lot of people in the nuclear space these days don't spend sufficient time looking into the history. I think a lot of people are kind of like, whatever happened and it's over. So who cares? We're moving forward now. But I do think, that looking back is can still be super valuable. And not to say that just because something happened one way in the past, that doesn't mean that's how it's always going to be if you try again or anything. But I mean, there's just every advanced concept was, you know, tried and there's all these critical mm -hmm. experiments and all these lessons learned. And it's like, and people, you know, I'll talk to people who have been working on a reactor program and they, they don't even know that there's a 2000 page document describing the R and D program for that same exact reactor, you know, 50 years ago. That's like, amazing. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Wow. I mean, so what's been, what's some of the, what are some of the standouts for you? Do you remember as you were going through this or that you still hold with you now that you sort of contemplate well, things you learned? 
Yeah, I mean, one of one of my favorites that's in there, and you know, so sometimes I, let me just mention that sometimes if I'm like reading about something, I try to decide does this belong on my webpage or does this belong in Wikipedia. And so a few times I've like pounded out a, a Wikipedia page on some or, or tried to improve a Wikipedia page if it's about like one type of reactor that doesn't have a page. And so one standout in that category is the totally forgotten sodium graphite reactor, which is sodium cooled graphite moderated. And they have a pretty bad reputation. There were two of them in the United States, one in LA and one in Nebraska. And they both didn't have like great operations like SRE in LA had a meltdown that still people are getting sued to this very day because of that meltdown. Yeah, yeah, like the company that bought the company that bought the company that bought the company is getting sued like today because of something that <laughs> happened. It's which is, you know, so so people are like, oh, I don't want to touch that. But actually it's like a super interesting concept. I mean, you get all the advantages of sodium cooling, you get your low pressure or high temperature, and then you're moderated. So you have really efficient with your fuel. You start up, I mean, with your startup fuel. So you don't need to go to any high assay or high enriched uranium. You can start up with like 2% enriched. They even had some ideas that could get you to start up with just natural uranium. And so it's actually a, a pretty interesting way to That's fascinating. kind of balance some of the advanced anyway. And, and, and a lot of the sodium technology valves, pumps, fuel handling equipment was developed because of that program. Mm. And then there's a lot more, a lot more, you know, everyone knows about sodium cooled fast neutron reactors, but a lot of that kind of came from, from that. So I had a great time kind of reading about that. And then earlier this year, I actually went to Nebraska to a, advanced reactor summit and it just so happened to be just a few miles from where one of those reactors had oh, been cool. and so I, I like drove down there and <laughs> you know it's a it was they built it at the same site as a coal plant and they actually shared a turbine because the high temperature capability was able to use the same exact turbine as that's awesome that's and like one of the things people are looking into now exactly and now there's like a grassy field where the nuclear plant was and the coal plant is still there <laughs> operating <laughs> But anyway, they didn't let me in. And then I mentioned that I went down there in my talk. And then after my talk, the like CEO of Nebraska Public Power, the utility was like, hey, I made some phone calls. And like, you want to, you know, get in the car, we'll drive you down there and get a tour. Oh, so anyway, anyway, so that sodium graphite reactor stuff is a standout that I think is pretty cool and mostly forgotten. Yeah. Are there any figures that you think are really important that people could stand to learn from, from your readings or whose influence should be more acknowledged today? Oh, let's see. I mean, there's, there's like some legends, you know, so like legendary reactor design people. Walter Zinn was just an example. He was kind of like the anti-Rickover. He was like really nice and like everybody liked him. I love and he the, also... the anti-Rickover because <laughs> Rickover was just such a power broker. He was yeah. so, like, he's, he's the one that decided that we were going to do ceramic pellets, right? Because it was harder to do. Was that him? Uh, I don't know if it was because it was harder to do. Uh, well, it's, was, it's, sorry, it's harder to do dual use was, I think, what one of the uh, concerns was. So I'm not see, sure if it's true, but I think I, mean, I read I, it in Richard Rhodes. Yeah, well, that may be true. I, I don't want to say if that's true or not because I don't, I don't, I don't remember that particular story. I mean, I, they did once the oxide fuel came along, it started having really high burn up, high temperature performance, and it was just better than the yeah. The, it got, it could, you could get more energy out of it than the metal fuel that they were using. So it just became more economical. That but there sense. may be an element of what you say as well. I don't actually know. Yeah. But yeah, so anyway, he was a, he's a cool guy. There's a, 
Milton Shaw, I think some people at least know about him, but he was sort of, he was like Rick Over's protege and he made a lot of calls about shutting down the research programs on some of the funny reactors, the organic cooled reactor, the molten salt reactor, the graphite reactor, and the high temperature reactor in favor of the liquid metal breeder. And so he's kind of like boogeyman, you know, for advanced reactor people. So he's kind of an interesting figure, but I don't know. None of them... I'm sure there's like great biographies and stuff that people would be that probably have some mm-hmm. good tidbits in them, but I haven't focused too much on like the people as much as sure. the, the, the technology, technology so far. Yeah. 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 I mean, I'm so impressed by the dynamism of what people were willing to experiment with, what they were willing to do. It's exhilarating to read about, to see how many types of reactor People, people are like, well, how does this work? How does that work? Like, it's hard to think about. It's hard to imagine that now, mm-hmm. all these years later. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, they had a, they had like a routine almost. It was like, do some studies. And if it looks good, do a critical experiment. And if that looks good, do a reactor experiment and then a prototype and then a sort of 60 megawatt commercial demo. Mm-hmm. And they did that on just dozens of reactor types. Super interesting. And yeah, now... I mean, there's a lot of data from all those, and then there's, we can run computer simulations, so it's like a little less important to be doing the little small critical experiments because Mm -hmm. we can like really believe a lot of our nuclear measurements and the simulations these days. But still, like, there was one important lesson that Alvin Weinberg is one character whose biography I have read, and I think it's worth, he's a great, I love Alvin Weinberg. And one of the things that he really emphasizes is that no matter how much you kind of study and do paper calculations of, of a reactor or even small experiments, you really don't know like what its performance is until mm-hmm. you have kind of like a commercial version of one. And even a fleet, like sometimes like LWRs in the mid sixties hadn't experienced any of the fleet performance issues that we're sort of dealing with that mm-hmm. we dealt with through the seventies. So like, it's really hard. You can't predict like a technology's performance I mean, you just can't, you have to like convince people that it's probably worth looking into and then Mm. go ahead and really build and operate before you can make any final judgment on, you know, (laughs) what the best reactor is or the appropriate reactor. Right. That seemed to be also just a strategy of the utilities was that before they were going to buy any sort of power generator, they'd want to make sure that there had been a test done, that the engineers were used to it. And it was only during like the crisis of diminishing returns before the energy crisis where they started to skip the test phase and go straight to build out and then be like, oh, God, this turbine's all off. Not necessarily with nuclear energy, but mm-hmm. they ran into this problem with coal and a mm-hmm. few other things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's really true. The This this coal plant that was built at the same time as the nuclear plant, because it was an experimental nuclear plant, the utility was like, hey, we need the power one way or the other, and we don't know if we can trust this experimental reactor. And so they were like, well, we'll build a coal plant, and then the Atomic Energy Commission can build the nuclear plant and then you know if all goes well we just won't burn too much coal but if not you know we'll have our coal plant for for reliability's sake and so that's the kind of and that's sort of a great example of them being like we're going to do tried and true until we know something's you know commercially available yeah yeah it's 
I just feel, I feel when I click through the images on your site, like all the old black and white images, I just feel <laughs> like this pride as an American <laughs> about yeah. what was achieved, you know? I'm like, this is incredible. Like, what a great gift this was that people were being this industrious. Yeah, it's super impressive. I mean, some of that stuff, I, it makes me kind of worried that like, uh, it's, uh, there was a time when, you know, there was like, oh, you want to you know, a grid plate for these kind of crazy assemblies. Like, yeah, just have those guys go pound one out. And like, they would just go do it. And it's just, I don't know. It, it certainly is. A, it's, I also feel pride and it's a great gift. And there's a, it's just a huge resource as long as, you know, people know it's out there and to go look for it. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, that's the, the service you provide. Is that, yeah, that's that, that wonderful thing. Are, are there any like, um, cautions that, you think could be gleaned from this history of this technology as you've investigated so far? Um, I tried there, at the, at the bottom of that page before the like 20 page reference section, there's like a little section that I wrote. I should pull it up. That was called like some observations. And mm -hmm. some of those are sort of cautionary. I mean, some of them were, I have an angry puppy here <laughs> and I've sort of, I've sort of touched on them already, but it's like, it's not really cautionary, but like, have somebody on your team spend some time digging up the old literature, even if it's like really old and see if they can find something useful. Like that's just sort of a suggestion. And then cautionary is like, and I, I don't think anybody really does this, but yeah, just don't, don't, don't feel like, you know, a, a particular reactor's performance until you've built and operated it, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, regardless of how good you think it is, you don't, and you can never know. And that's just, sort of part of it. And so I think that's just like a language thing. Like a salesperson will say, like, this is a really great reactor for these reasons. And an engineer will be like, well, we think it's good, but we need to prove it or test it, things like that. And there's so many examples of something that just seemed perfect, like the sodium graphite reactor. And then it had like some minor technical problem and they weren't able to, and the, you know, the engineers came back and said, oh, we figured out the problem and we can solve it. And we solved it in the lab and we're ready to bring it in. And the utility was like, yeah, it's too late. Like we're just we're, we don't want it. Like you, <laughs> yeah, you, you like, missed ah, your chance. We're done. Yeah. Like yeah, that's cool that you can fix it, but like we're gonna do our coal plant for now. <laughs> yeah. And so, um, sort of anticipating that and having some kind of like plan to be robust against those kind of kind mm -hmm. of small-ish things that can be program killing. I think that's something to watch out for. Yeah. How do you think nuclear messaging? could best incorporate this history when we go to go to bat for this technology in the public square like for me obviously i'm already sold mm -hmm. i run this podcast i do all yeah, this yeah. stuff <laughs> so i'm like this is amazing yeah, yeah but how do you think advocates should approach this information hmm. That's a good question. I mean, there's some complexity to it because, you know, there's like some negative elements of nuclear history as well as I oh, think sure. most people are aware when it comes to, you know, various problems where health problems of the Navajo miners, for example, mm -hmm. like those, those things all get it. And, and the, the way, anyway, there's various things like that that are sort of wrapped up in like old nuclear. So like old nuclear kind of is like, oh, they were crazy and they did it. They were unsafe and all these mm -hmm. bad things happened. So that's, that sort of complicates it. And also, I mean, it was like all men. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I mean, not, yeah. not all, but I mean, it was very, it's like very, all the pictures of people are like men, white men doing stuff. And so, you know, which 
So I don't know exactly how to, I mean, it's certainly, I haven't really thought about it from that perspective in terms of like how you could leverage that. I definitely, I definitely like consider the audience to be like people who are interested in nuclear and want to like dig yeah. into the details of the history. So, yeah, so I don't know. I mean, some of the, and there's certainly some like the Sierra Club originally was like pro nuclear because it was yeah. pretty low impact. And, you know, and I think some of the reasons they were pro nuclear are still totally valid and interesting. Yep. And so maybe it's hard to say that, like, you know, they would have obviously they didn't stay pro nuclear as various incidents happened. So it's hard to kind of say, like, you know, they would still, they, you know, these people would still say this, you know, even mm -hmm. after they're long gone. But I think some of the arguments that people were making in the, in the early days are still pretty interesting mm -hmm. and valid. Even like, I mean, Alvin Weinberg in the 50s was writing about, you know, the long-term sustainability of the nuclear fuel resources on Earth, which is something that comes up a lot. You know, you'll see anti-nuclear people saying like, well, there's only enough uranium for, you know, 10 years of running the full. I love that. I love those stats. I'm like, what? Like, <laughs> Well, and they just, and like, they just aren't considering, they just are writing off the concept of breeder reactors, which is like, uh, you know, crazy. I mean, in the early days, breeder reactors were the only way we were going to have a long-term sustainable nuclear fleet. And, and to this day, that's still true. And so to just say like, oh, nuclear fuel resources only last 10 years, Unless you, you know, do the thing that makes it last for a billion years. That we know how to do. <laughs> well, let's, just, let's just leave that out. Yeah. So I don't, some of those old, there's like some classic papers that sort of summarize those kind of things really well. But there's modern versions of that as well. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I don't have a great answer to your question. <laughs> no, that's fine. I mean, I think it's something that, you know, the thing that's inspiring to me right now about being involved in talking about nuclear is that there's a lot of room for people to figure out what parts of it they're the best at representing. And I think that's really, really important for us going forward because we need a lot of people to see their destinies in nuclear in a lot yeah. of different ways. And I think the history is one of those ways. I don't necessarily know how yet, but I do know that I feel less alone surprisingly when i read about the history of nuclear because i realize i'm part of a chain of human events that precedes me sometimes that's hard yeah you know and, but other times i'm like how amazing that this is even here at all and i also think that it gives me a sense of humility when i read this stuff i don't know how all of this is going to pan out but neither did any of these people doing these amazing things yeah you know, they were just yeah. putting it together one day at a time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that that is inspiring and interesting. And sometimes I sort of find myself thinking like, well, right now we're at this moment where, you know, these the things that are in, in action right now are going to take 20 plus years to sort of play out, you know, with mm -hmm. different energy transitions and whatnot. And so I kind of it seems to me like in 20 or 25 years, you know, there's going to be like a moment where either you know, long-term storage and, and intermittent renewables are going to like work together with the grid and everything's going to be fine in that regard. Or there's going to be an absolutely desperate need for a vast and huge amount of nuclear power, mm -hmm. like based on like how it pans out. And obviously there's people on both sides of that sort of prediction sure. yeah. right now. And there's papers on both sides and so yeah. on. 
but like it's kind of it doesn't hurt to have a big group of people spending time working on one, on both of those scenarios right mm-hmm. so so being like i'm on the part it's working on you know this situation where we're going to have to mass produce you know 4000 gigawatt scale nuclear reactors in x number of years and that's super exciting and so anyway and i think that's just part of that big chain and then you know if the other part works out like great we solved our climate and energy problems and nuclear will still be totally important you know past mars (laughs) mars and beyond (laughs) yeah yeah exactly there's a there's a future beyond the stars waiting for us with nuclear yeah in the long term we know we know nuclear is going to happen you know assuming we survive the next hundred thousand years or so we'll be using nuclear power in in the very long term so you know any any little thing we right now maybe it'll be used then you know worst case absolute worst case from a you know personal <laughs> impact point of view <laughs> yeah yeah no i like that so i just have one last question for you and okay. it's what's given you hope these days i would say i think there's there seems to be like like i was saying this big upswing in public acceptance and public interest in nuclear energy and i think I get it. That's exciting. And I get a lot of, I think that's definitely hopeful. I mean, we just, there's lots of pretty kind of high profile people saying completely positive things about nuclear power, which is sort of entering into this, um, this, the nuclear industry has been kind of hiding for a few few decades, mostly (laughs) thinking like, well, if they don't know we're here, they won't, you know, protest us. But it's, I think it's really shifting to a point where people are like, hey, you know, this is interesting and useful and it's low carbon and mm-hmm. it's sustainable and, and reliable and so on. And so I think that happening, I think we'll see a lot of positive progress, both, you know, in energy transitions from fossil and biofuel towards clean energy, including nuclear. Yeah. And then, and then the other thing is, I mean, there's another big reflection of that is sort of at the, you know, we've, we see places like China announcing that they're going to build 100 50 reactors in yeah. 15 years. I was like, like that, whoa. Which is, yeah, that's a big, big commitment, you know, major, major stuff going on. Mm-hmm. So, and then also there's like, uh, sort of like you were saying, I mean, there's different types of people coming into the nuclear advocacy space, mm-hmm. like Isabel, you know, from TikTok, yeah. which is totally unique and interesting. And like we've chatted a few, she, she went to what is nuclear.com too and read a couple things. So like that, that's been, I think that's really interesting and exciting. And she's like reaching out to like a much a younger audience. Which where, is great. Which is which great. no one, like I have no, in roads to like yeah, what am I watching Instagram. Yeah. Yeah. I'm oh my God. Yeah. I feel like the crypt keeper when I see teens <laughs> on TikTok now. Yeah. yeah. You know? I'm like, thank God she's there. I couldn't do that. Yeah. You know? And that's important work. The kids need to know. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, there's these stories about like in France, you know, so the school kids don't know, they don't think nuclear is low carbon. You know, they're like, oh yeah. no, it's high carbon, right? And I'm like, yeah, you're you know, why is this not being taught? I know. So, yeah. That's pretty important. No, I think so too. Well, on that note, man, thank you so much for joining me. Um, yeah, this course. was a lot of fun. I hope it's the first of many conversations about nuclear past, present, and future <laughs> that we get to have. Where can people find you uh, and where can they find your work? So they can find me uh, at whatisnuclear.com, my 
page i've been running since 2006 or so and then i've been tweeting a lot in the last few years so at what is nuclear is my twitter handle so i'm on there chitting and chatting sort of my covid friends and enemies are are on twitter so <laughs> yeah <laughs> those are that's those are kind of the major venues i'm i'm hanging out these days okay so, great yeah well so, and, and thanks for having me on it's been absolutely a pleasure Good. I'm glad you feel that way. So everyone, thank you for listening. Or if you're watching, thank you for watching. And remember, stay strong, stay sharp, and stay radiant. Till next time.